Electricast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On this episode of Missing the Point, we're joined by longtime New England Patriots beat writer for the Boston Herald, Karen Gregan. We'll talk to Karen about Cam Newton's return to the Patriots and the Patriots' expensive offseason, how beat writers have had to adjust to storytelling during the pandemic, and we'll also discuss the release and retirement of Julian Alban. This is Missing the Point, episode 54, but it's all relative. Welcome to Missing the Point. I am your host, Michael Marcangelo, joined by Joe Malkin, and today we have a very special guest. She has covered all the local sports teams, including the Red Sox, Bruins, and Patriots for the Boston Herald since 1984. She's also covered two Winter Olympics, along with men's and women's professional golf, tennis, and soccer. She is currently working as the featured Patriots beat columnist. Please welcome, from the Boston Herald, Karen Garigian. Thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're, we are super excited. Obviously, this offseason has been one of the one of the most notable in, in Patriots history, or, or at least recent Patriots history. So we want to talk a little bit about that, the draft, then obviously the big news with Julian Edelman being cut and retiring. But I think we'd like to start first with just the offseason. You know, they spent a ton of money this offseason to acquire, you know, Hunter Henry, John Dew Smith, Nelson Aguilar, Matt Judon, Jalen Mills, Kendrick Bourne. The list goes on. It's very unpatriot-like. So in, just based off of your experience with this team, was Belichick forced to do this in the offseason because of how last year went? Forced might be strong. But I think Tom Brady leaving and winning, although they will never admit it, played a little bit of a factor. Going seven and nine and missing the playoffs was another factor. And the third factor, I think, is the fact that they haven't really done well in the draft. And the draft is your lifeblood. And it's the thing that kind of helps you keep on with sustained success like the Patriots have had for two decades. Although some people like to argue if you have Tom Brady, it doesn't matter who you have around you, but it does. So they've botched a few drafts and basically the roster that they had last year had a ton of holes with it. And so they really acknowledged such and reloaded, and they had the money to do it. That was the other thing. Last year was such a strange year for this team. 
for a lot of reasons, right? So Tom Brady, the cornerstone of the franchise, leaves for Tampa, as we mentioned, and we've mentioned so many times in the show, Mike and I go back and forth on that constantly, even when we're not on the show. And then they take a long time to bring in a quarterback. They bring in Cam Newton, who we know is damaged goods at the time that he was signed. He comes in and at the beginning of the season, it didn't look like a 7-9 and nine season, right? I mean, Edelman had a career game against Seattle. Cam Newton looked great against Seattle. And it really looked like things were clicking. And then the COVID bug hit. And Cam went down and Julian went down with an injury. You mentioned them going 7-9 and nine last year was a part of that. But knowing the kind of year it was going to be going in, would you say that they kind of knew what they were going to be getting into and going seven and nine with that roster, was there any satisfaction in that? Well, there's a couple of things. I don't know if obviously the pandemic came and they also lost eight players. Right. Which was the most any other team had in the league. But just getting back to your point, you know, my understanding is that, you know, Coach Belichick wanted to move on from Tom Brady not just this past year, but several years before. And, you know, his initial plan was Jimmy Garoppolo, but you couldn't dump Tom Brady when he's winning you Super Bowls. So the thing that surprised me the most was the most prepared guy in the business wasn't prepared for Tom Brady's departure. And it's not like, you know, whether you think it's, you know, between his age and the fact that Belichick was trying to push him out the door, the fact that they were kind of so ill-prepared for it actually really stunned me. But getting back to the record in seven and nine and with the roster and the quarterback and COVID, that was probably a good record for that team. Yeah, I was going to say, in reality, it just looked a lot worse than it, I guess, it actually was, right? I mean, because seven and nine, with what they had on the field at times, their defense was not that bad. Especially when they had all those people out, you would have thought it would have been a little bit worse. So, you know, a lot of fans, I myself included, believe that Belichick went into that season just thinking that no one would be as prepared for everything else as he would. And that's normally the case. So, seeing how that played out, was that another reason why he went and? maybe overspent for some players this offseason because he didn't want to get caught off guard again? Perhaps. But I also think there's an owner in there who wasn't very happy. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, we we heard it from him a few weeks back when he, you know, spoke to the media after the league meetings. I think it was like the first week of April. Yeah. And, you know, he pointed out that it was a horrible feeling basically how the season went, how it ended, having a losing season. And he also pointed to failed drafts. So, you know, if the owner's not happy, it gets back to the head coach without question. It was one of those things where we we finally saw after 20 years, two decades of success, as you mentioned, Karen, we finally saw Robert Kraft call out Bill Belichick really in his own way. And to that end, we saw a lot of personnel moves, not just players, but also in the front office. Nick Casario departs for Houston, which 
Sounds like he's having an interesting time down there right now. They bring in Dave Ziegler or keep Dave Ziegler on as the director of player personnel, de facto GM. Matt Patricia comes back as a scout. Thank goodness he won't be on the sideline, but we'll get to that in a few minutes as well. These moves were made in the front office. And then Robert Kraft also mentioned that there has been a change in philosophy. And Bill Belichick kind of fielded a question in his press conference today about that. And he seemed to stumble over his words. And almost to me, this was my personal feeling, is that he did not seem happy with the way it's gone. But he also kind of had a little bit of resolve in his voice that he kind of understands that's what needs to happen because of all the things that Robert pointed out. So keeping Dave Ziegler on as the director of player personnel, keeping him from going to Denver, are, are we seeing that in front of our eyes, that re- not re- relief of power from Bill Belichick, but taking the pressure off of him a little bit as the GM and, and letting other personnel in the front office make decisions. You know, I'll believe that when I see it. <laughs> I really will. You know, Bill, Bill can delegate, but he still has the final say over every decision. It's not like he's going to be letting Dave Ziegler make the decision on the first draft pick. Basically, Bill gets all the information and then decides for himself, either based on what his scouts and people are telling him, but he also likes to chat with his friends in the coaching community. And I mean, other decision makers do the same thing. Why wouldn't you call Nick Saban to try and get a scouting report, not only on Alabama players, but players that Saban has gone against. And it just might be that Belichick has relied a little too much on that type of information. But here's the other, I think the bigger picture issue here is, and maybe Belichick also realized this, when you have a Tom Brady for a quarterback, or at least for the majority of the two decades he was under center, he could cover up for a lot of the bad drafts and the bad signings and bad play calling, bad, bad everything. I mean, he, he was the biggest wart, you know, coverer of them all because they could still win because they had him. They could still win with him with junk receivers As he got older, that changed a little bit. He could no longer be that kind of Superman who fixed everything. So why did they reload all across the board? Because I almost think (laughs) I could be wrong. I think Coach Belichick wants to win in spite of the quarterback. We've uh, we've heard a lot, especially in this area over the last, you know, 20 years that Coach Belichick must really have to overperform because of the underperformance of GM Belichick, right? And it feels like this year they're trying to clo- he's trying to close that gap a little bit. And he filled mm-hmm. all the holes that that were apparent to us. Mm-hmm. Would you say, you know, seeing as you've been around the team since you know 1984, 100 years, yes. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yep. long before Belichick, yeah. that's right. Is it fair to say that this is the most important offseason that you've experienced in Bill Belichick's time here? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, he's had a couple where he had to go, he literally had to go get Brady some weapons at, at one point, the Randy Moss year, Moss, Welker, et cetera. You know, you know, 
But the standard here, though, is so different than anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, the expectation with or without Brady is they're going to contend and be in the Super Bowl. And when you fall short, I mean, people used to get upset if they didn't either get to the Super Bowl or get into the Super Bowl. Yeah. Now it's like, oh, my God, they can't even get into the playoffs. <laughs> so, so, again, the dynamics have changed a little bit. But as I said, they don't have the ult- ultimate fixer-upper. And I don't want to diminish Belichick in this because I think because of his coaching, I mean, they did get seven wins right. in spite yeah. of themselves. So when you have the greatest coach on the sideline, now I guess he thinks I better get some, some actual talent around me so we can do more. Yeah, that that 07 offseason that you just brought up, it's the first thing that I thought about. But then I I stepped back and and I I said, well, they were in the AFC title game the year before. He retooled just to get to the Super Bowl, right? Correct. Now he has to retool just to stay maybe relevant in a division that is moving exponentially up the ladder more more than it has in the last 20 years. That's a great point, Mike, because they could get away with having mediocre teams and Tom because they would always win the division and they could win it in their sleep. But finally, Buffalo's woken up. Miami's getting there. And I still think the Jets are below, but with a new coach, a new quarterback, a new everything, maybe, well, we'll see if they blow it with the second pick, but (laughs) (laughs) they tend to blow it, but they could be up and coming as well. So it's not the cupcake or, uh, lollipop division, or as Dan Shaughnessy would say, tomato can division that they've been used to in the past. I mean, they're going to have to work to win. So working to win brings up a really good question here, right? Because we just talked about how they, they lost a, they lost the quarterback. And you're right. Bill was trying to rid himself of, of Tom since he drafted Jimmy. And when he did do that, everyone was a little surprised. And then, of course, you can't just keep the 25-year-old quarterback until the ageless wonder decides to retire. But now they're in a situation where they have Cam Newton, who Mike and I both believe will be better this year just by the the, the property of the fact that, well, he, he's probably not going to catch COVID, knock on wood, not going to catch COVID this season. They put actual weapons around him. They've really retooled the defense. They're going to have a lot of those guys back, of course, with the loss of, of Chung on the defensive side. But is Cam Newton the starting quarterback for the New England Patriots, in, in your mind, in your opinion? And can he get them back to the playoffs this season? I think he will be for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think. Jimmy Garoppolo is headed this way, at least this year. Although we'll see. We'll see how if the 49ers come down on their asking price. And number two, if the Patriots draft a quarterback, that quarterback, there's, it's doubtful. He'll just step right in. Plus, Bill Belichick is loath to play rookies, much less a rookie quarterback. So... I see it as being Cam's offense to run, and I agree. I can't see him being worse than last year. And with time, with the time he's had to understand the playbook more, one, two, I know for a fact he's been working on his footwork 
which was a, a mess. His mechanics were a mess last year. But again, with COVID and with the situation and the guidelines, it was hard for the Patriots to say to try and fix all that. They were trying to teach him the playbook. So he, he's working to try and get his mechanics back. Again, his shoulder bothers me because of the bounced passes, all the bounces we saw. I don't know if you can fix that, but if Cam is better, they will be better. Well, as Mike has said, he still accounted for 20 touchdowns, eight passing and 12 rushing. Yeah, and that's... if he doesn't have the COVID game and he plays better with the weapons around him, he could have eight more touchdowns, which could mean three to four more wins. Is basically Mike paraphrased. Well, yeah, I mean, I was my back was against the wall there, and I don't. We don't need to. I don't need to embarrass myself uh, further. But Cam almost has to start there, right? Like unless the uh, unless you know you can get a Justin Fields or you know a, a Trey Lance, but. I was going to say, time out. What about Jarrett Stidham? You're forgetting about good old Jarrett. How do you feel about good old Jarrett Stidham? Now we're going to ask that question. How yeah, do I you just feel, have, Karen? Well, I want to hear your thoughts on that. But if he, if Bill were to start anybody but Cam after spending upwards of $150 million this offseason, like, if Cam winning 11 games, doesn't that validate the spending? Yeah, and guess what? I actually – Looking at the schedule, which isn't too tough, yeah. I I picked out eleven wins, and that's with Cam as the quarterback. So it, it could be more. I mean, it's not the toughest. They're playing a third place schedule, basically. Right. And there are some tough games in there, but again, I came out with eleven wins with Cam throwing the football. So that should, that that should tell you a lot. To that end, too, you know what I see here? I'm thinking of it as as we're talking about this, but this is a perfect situation for Bill almost to draft a quarterback, not bring Jimmy back, although Jimmy was supposed to be his guy, right? But this is a good situation because he's only got Cam for another year. You draft that guy, and now he has the keys to the car where he's not waiting for Mr. Tom Brady, six-time Super Bowl winning quarterback, to walk out the door. He can just say, Cam, hey, that's going to do it, and this kid, you know, this kid's taking over, and now he's got his guy for the future. Yeah, and with Cam being kind of such a good soldier, and I do think he's a good soldier, I would watch for the Patriots drafting someone more like him than Tom Brady. And by that, I mean a mobile-type quarterback. Because, again, if they're re, they're not changing up the whole offense, but they're making it more suitable, or they tried at least last year to make it more suitable to Cam. And I'm sure they're going to do even more things to make it suitable for a mobile running quarterback. So why would you pet, why would you draft the future and have him be a pocket passer? Sure. Yeah. That's just again, I'm just trying to think logically. You mentioned them trying to put the tools around Cam for it to be an offense more around him. And I have my own personal thoughts on uh, Josh McDaniels, but in terms of the play calling and the personnel, does this team that they're putting around Cam remind you at all of the teams that Ron Rivera built around him in Carolina? A little bit. I mean, because they had a great tight end. I don't know if they had two great tight ends, but they had their speed guy and they had a really good tight end outlet. I mean, it's it sort of, it's a little mindful of, for me, the Ravens' current offense. 
right? With with the mobile Lamar Jackson, who are his favorite receivers? The two tight ends. They do have a speed guy as well, but it's run first, smash mouth, throw to the tight ends, and basically bully everybody down the field. It's bully ball. And the Patriots have a great offensive line, in my view. And that's where it starts. And again, if you if you try and not force Cam to throw the ball 30 times, you're going to win games with him throwing the ball 20 times and then running it maybe 30 to 40 times a game. He just needs to hold on to the football. Yeah, just hold on to it. So you brought up bully ball, and, and I never really thought about this too, because when you think about last year, they had all of the, the tools in place to be that ground and pound offense, right? But in the red zone, they had no one to bring in the football, right? To catch it. They had no real target. So now, right. how, what do you, like, for, for someone who, again, who's covered the team for a very long time, right? How I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. I'm having I'm having a Joe Malkin moment over here. <laughs> what, what's Just this? Just what's, ask yeah, ask what's the ceiling for this red zone offense in your opinion? Oh, I think it just it multiplied because obviously there was only one way they were to get the ball in last year, and that was running it. If because and defenses knew it, Seattle knew it when they stopped Cam on the goal line. If you, if you know you're not going to pass the ball because you have no targets or no viable guys, why bother? But now defenses are going to have to pay attention to those tight ends. They're going to have to pay attention to Aguilar. They're going to have to – so they're going to have to play a lot more honest as opposed to stuff in the box. So I think exponentially they'll be better in the red zone – just for the fact that they have a couple people now that defenses are going to have to keep their eye on, as opposed to Cam and the running backs. It's a, it's a great point. Now, before we move on to the draft, what are your thoughts on Jared Stidham? Because we – did you lose faith after the Kansas City game? In him or Hoyer <laughs> or both? Oh, yeah, but well, Hoyer's gone, right? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> a St- Stidham, I mean, what a deflating experience if you're a fan of Stidham, right? Well, it's – the whole Stidham experience has been odd yeah. because when Brady left, it was put out that Stidham was the guy. He was the guy. He was going to, yeah, they were pumping him up like, you know, we're all set. Don't worry. Stidham, Stiddy, come on, Stid the kid. He's going to be the, the guy. <laughs> and then at some point during the off season, when he was off at weddings or whatever on the weekend, he kind of fell out of favor and that's when they pull on the put on the full court press to get cam at the last minute so again they see him in practice every day we don't get to see and especially last year we didn't really get to see much so something must have changed their outlook and thinking about him and i think you saw it when he played Obviously, he can throw the ball. He threw the ball better than Cam. Yep. But again, it's all quarterback isn't just throwing the football. It's decision making. Yeah. And he was hesitant, and he he wasn't always getting rid of the ball in that rapid kind of fashion. 
Does that mean it'll never happen? I don't know. It, it takes some quarterbacks time, but it just seems that the Patriots have moved past him. It's so interesting because we talk about Stidham and, and Cam Newton when he came in. I was high on Cam when he came in because he has been a very good quarterback. He's always he's been a good soldier. He's he is he's a great he's a great football player. Let's just put it out there. Like he's an incredible athlete. He's uh, in a beast of a human being. And they, you know, we've had guys like Jimmy Garoppolo come in. They drafted Ryan Mallett, you know, early on in the early 2010s, thinking he was going to be the next guy after Brady. Again. Who would have known that Tom Brady would just stick around for so long? And and so many people want that guy that's just going to step in and be the next Brady. And, and we hear that so often. But what people don't realize is that Tom Brady was drafted and sat behind four yeah. guys. Yeah. He, yeah, he was the fourth guy. He was sitting up in a box in, in 2000, and he was behind John Freeze and and uh, D- Damon Heward. And when he sure. came in, I, I remember I was at the game. He came in when Mo Lewis knocked Drew Bledsoe out of the game. And as, as much as we want a guy like Brady who's going to step in and be great, it, it took him a while to get there to that NFL level. It took him a year. Uh, of being the number four quarterback. And now we look at Jared Stidham. I almost see them on two opposite ends of the spectrum because I think it's taken Stidham too long and Tom did it in a very short period of time. So to me, fans have to realize it's not just going to happen overnight and it's it may not be that next guy. We may have to deal with a year, uh, another year I say deal with it as, a, as if I'm d- dismissing him. But Cam's going to be better this year. But I, people, if they do draft a quarterback, they're going to have to wait a year more of Cam before we see that guy. Let me just flat go back because you made me think of something interesting. Yeah, Brady was one of four quarterbacks, I believe. But if you talk to or go back and read reports coming out of that training camp, there were a lot of stories. All right, so you had Bledsoe and two Keward and who else was there? I think it was John Freeze. John Freeze or whatever. He, there might I think there might have been five. But anyway, most of the reporting that was coming out of training camp was that Brady was the best quarterback on the field day in and day out. And the people who covered the Patriots then weren't like totally shocked. That's who Belichick went to when Belichick when Bledsoe was blown up by Mo Lewis. But obviously they, he was a game manager or they had him basically manage and not make mistakes that first year. And then gradually they gave him more, they gave him more run of the offense, but it did take a while before Brady wasn't that game manager type. So it'll be the same thing with a rookie coming in. so, Mike, I, I have to correct us there. It was Drew Bledsoe was the number one, and then it was Michael Duff. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say that Bledsoe, Bledsoe, I got Bledsoe on my mind. Brady was not only the best quarterback on the field during that time, but he also gained, as you said, Belichick's trust because he, you know that he would go out there and not lose you a game. Bill can't say that about Stenham now. We, we saw it. He can make those intermediate passes between the 20s, but in the, like, in the red zone, he just doesn't have it. Could you see him, here's the best case in point, with a minute left on the clock in the Super Bowl, moving them into field goal range like Brady calmly did that year, right? No, 
You can't. No. So, and that's that's point. the difference. <laughs> that's what I mean is it's just taking Stidham longer. He, and, and again, we don't need the next Tom Brady because the next Tom Brady may never come along. We may never see that ever again. He's in, in Kansas City. Yeah. It, it, well, that's the first pat. Well, the second Patrick Mahomes, but the, the that was that Super Bowl thirty six drive where he brought the team down the field to get in field goal range for that forty eight yarder from Adam Vinatieri game I was at st- still brings me a tear to my eye and chills to my bones to this day. That was the second greatest drive of his career, and the first was the final drive against Atlanta to win the game in the Super Bowl and the comeback. But you're absolutely right. Stidham is never, I don't think he's ever going to be that guy. And I think I would much rather Cam Newton with a minute left in the Super Bowl oh, me too. than Jared Stidham. Yeah. Because again, Newton has limitations now, but he still has that savvy and, and he's a veteran and he, he's not intimidated by the moment. Let me put it that way. Hey, he wasn't intimidated coming in, replacing the greatest of all time. He wasn't. And that's why I thought he was like a great last minute choice because Newton isn't phased. So what? He had all due respect to Brady, but Brady's Brady, Cam, I wear a cape too. And he was ready to go. But again, the circumstances weren't conducive to him being successful. And that was right off the, right from jump coming in the 1st of July and trying to learn a complex offense with no real offseason, no offseason games, and then getting COVID after week three or two or whatever it was. And it just, he had little to no chance of being really successful. Before we move on to the draft, I want to make another or ask another question to that and see what you think from kind of more of the inside. Did those same factors affect Josh McDaniels the same way? Well, I think all it, it had to because basically he went back to what everyone called the high school offense. I mean, they couldn't do most of the things that they usually do. It it was just too complex and complicated for Cam to get in a moment's notice almost. So he had to really go to the basic of basics. Cam even said it when he came back from COVID. It's like they had moved ahead and he was still behind. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just hard for it all to 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 jive. One one last question before we move to the draft, because now <laughs> with all this cam is not going to be as bad talk. I want to fast forward a year, right? Let's say that the Patriots go 13 and four. They don't win a Super Bowl. Cam does well. And they draft a quarterback this year. What do you do? Do you keep Cam? You might. I mean, I, that that except, could be a world they live in, right? Except here's the difference. He's going to cost more. Yeah. (laughs) He's going to cost a lot more. I mean, the thing that made him attractive now, A, was the cost. And he actually knows the system better than somebody who would be coming in fresh, even though he still is technically learning the system. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's always interested me is because now, again, it's it's like GM Bill and Coach Bill are not really working in unison, right? Because if they improve the team around Cam so much that his performance improves and they don't draft the right guy, mm-hmm. then we're doing this all over again next year. Yeah. If they don't have the solution. So and so that moves us to 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 this year's draft. The Patriots had the number 15 overall pick. Do you think that they will move up to to reach for a quarterback, maybe nine or ten for Justin Fields if he falls? Or are we going to see what we usually see out of Bill in the first round? And either it's a defensive player or they trade out of the first for three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> My gut tells me that they will pick a defensive player and only because the really good ones are going to – I mean – they're in a rare spot at number 15. While it's not good to get the best quarterbacks, it's good to perhaps land a franchise type cornerback, linebacker, defensive lineman. And that's Bill's wheelhouse. Right. Quarterback is not his wheelhouse, even though he did snag Brady in the sixth round. <laughs> so my that's what my gut tells me. But again, he just spent over three hundred million. For, <laughs> again, that, that I wasn't so much surprised by him spending. It was how much he spent, and I was my jaw actually dropped day two. Like he gets Johnu Smith day one, and then the first thing you hear day two, they sign Henry too, and I'm going, "Oh my head!" <laughs> you know, I, I mean. But you know what? They had a plan. They had players they wanted, and they just meticulously went about landing them. If they, and if they didn't land one, they just moved to the next guy. Boom, boom. And, I mean, that's great. They had a plan. I hope they have a similar plan with the draft, and I would hope that they have a plan for the quarterback. So, I mean, if that's the case, maybe they do move up to eight or nine or somewhere where they can get somebody. But I don't think they're going to push it or force it. For, for what it's worth, and Joe, I'm sorry to cut you off here. I, I'm never the one to do this, but Belichick has actually done pretty well with quarterbacks when you think about it, right? Brady, Castle, Brissett, Garoppolo. He hasn't really – well, he's missed a lot too, but I, I don't think – I think his worst area of drafting, I'd be really interested to hear your perspective, Karen, is wide receiver. Oh, I mean, easy. <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's not close. Yeah. What, Chad Jackson wasn't a, an all-pro wide receiver? Uh, Aaron, yeah, Dobson, uh, Ken, Kendrell Tompkins. It's not great. Yeah, I mean, and his best receiver that he drafted was a quarterback. So, yep. Edelman. Yep. <laughs> so – I mean, he actually, he, he, I'll take that back. He also did draft Dion Branch, and he was pretty good. Pretty good. But I think the, the, it's tougher to draft receivers in, because of, again, the type of op, what they're expected to do. And there's a huge difference of what receivers do in college than what they are asked to do in the pros, particularly in a Patriots offense. You're not just running down the field when you're a receiver. I mean, that that is so not the job. If it was, they would have lots of talented players. But the receiver really has to be in sync with the quarterback. They have to read the defense. They have to know where everyone is and where everyone's going. 
And if they see something with the defense that the quarterback sees, they have to know to go to what spot to negate that type of defense. Like the play just goes to blows up in smoke and they go to another spot. So there's actually some thinking and intelligence involved and not, and that's not everyone's cup of tea. I mean, you can have this, the greatest athlete at, at receiver and they can run a four, two or three and zip down the field. But what good is it if, again, you're not on the same page with the quarterback? So there's a lot more to it. The trouble is even in a great wide receiver draft, they seem to draft the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, sure, right. Nikhil Harry, we could have had DK Metcalf instead. But that brings up a good point because as, as bad as he's been at drafting wide receivers – with that kind of analysis, you look at the receivers that he did draft, not the greatest guys of all time, the guys that he brought in. So he brought in Welker. He drafted Edelman. He drafted Branch. But he also had other guys. He drafted David Givens, uh, Reshake Caldwell. They brought in guys over the years that were maybe smart. Randy Moss. Randy Moss is what? one of the smartest receivers he's ever had. I mean, he picked up the playbook like that, and he got on the same page with Brady like that. But he, again, it's not an it's not street intelligence; it's football intelligence mostly, right. and and being able to, to to decipher what you're seeing from the defense, and also knowing that your quarterback is seeing the same thing, and you reacting accordingly. As I said, it's not just running down the field or running to a yes. spot. It's a, being able to adjust based on what you see in front of you. Which is why I believe that DK Metcalf is, is successful in Seattle and would not be successful right. here. And yeah, a lot of people are like, point. you know, the best example I can give you of this, what a receiver is supposed to have in his brain you remember the year that Edelman threw the, the pass to mm-hmm. play Brady to Edelman to Amendola? That was in a playoff game. Week two, I think it was week two or three or whatever game they got blown out by Kansas City in Kansas City. They called that play in the huddle or it was sent in. Amendola, who was flanked out left, looked at the defense. And when Tom looked at Amendola, Amendola waved it off and said, no, we can't run it. We can't do this. The defense does, it won't work with the defense that they have. So no one ever saw that play for that reason. Wow. And, And so they kept it in the holster until the next important moment. And when against the the Ravens when Brady looked over Amendola gave him the green light and said, yes, we can do this. They did it. So Danny Amendola is the key to the Patriots offense, not Tom Brady. No, I'm, just kidding. <laughs> not, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but, but no, it's exactly right. And it, uh, who would have thought that the two uh, skater bros that were skating around Boston, Julian Edelman and Danny Amendola would have been two of the smartest receivers Correct. he's ever played with which yep. is amazing. Earlier in, in his tenure here, I mean, they did that same thing against the Indianapolis, right? It was Brady yep. to David Patton to Troy Brown. And, and and they did that a couple of times. Now, when you, when you mentioned the smartest receiver that you ever, that, that, we, that we've ever had here is Randy Honest. Moss. And I've heard that a lot. 
Conversely, Chad Ochocinco was the polar opposite. <laughs> right, but but I mean, you were there. I heard he was a great practice wide receiver, but just couldn't do it on the field. Well, I mean, it, when you're just running in practice, <laughs> you look good. And again, but he was coming from a, from an offense in Cincinnati where all they really wanted him to do was run down the field, yeah. go straight, take no detours. Will hit you. When he came here, and they told him all that was involved with being a receiver, aside from running down the field. I, I mean, it blew up his brain. Yeah. Reggie Wayne had the same problem. Yeah. yeah. And there was another receiver. I can't think of his name. He, I think he was a Ram, uh, former Ram, and he was a speed guy too. Great receiver. Oh, I know who you're talking about. It was right after Josh came back here the second time around, right? Yeah, was- and and he just again a great receiver somewhere else. Yeah, he came here, and it was rocket science trying to play receiver. So you think it's going to be a, a defensive pick in the first round if they don't trade up to nine, nine or nine or ten? I would. Yeah, my guess is if they don't make that move for the quarterback, they will let the best defensive player they can get and take that guy at 15. Will they still be drafting a quarterback in round in round two? Cause they don't have a third rounder this year, right? I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. So I, 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 my, I would love Kyle Trask. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I think you're probably more familiar with him than I am. Yep. Doesn't he, does, doesn't he fit what they're building here too? Except that he doesn't fit the cam profile. Right. Yeah. He's not as mobile, right? Nope. Yeah. You wouldn't run a mobile offense with him. I mean, he's a gunslinger. So, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I was just thinking of the defensive player at 15. So, let's say they don't trade up. I I don't know if Denver is going to want to trade with them anyway, because Denver, I don't know, is Denver going to ride Drew Locke to a Super Bowl? Who knows? But when they look, when you look at the draft and and you see the defensive players, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, that the good defensive players are going to sit there in the middle of the first round because it's going to be quarterback and, and, and running back wide receiver heavy in the top 10 to 12 picks. And then at 15, there's going to be a defensive player sitting there. Mike mentions drafting a quarterback in the second round. I'm with you. I think it's going to happen that they're going to take a quarterback with their second pick. Could you see them trading back into the first round around 24-25, which is currently held by Pittsburgh, and the Jets have 23? Could you see them trying to trade back into that area, 23 through 25, to take a quarterback? Yes, I could. Yep. And that way they can, hey, we get a first-round quarterback. Yippee. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it goes to show it, it'll be interesting to see who picks the quarterback. Let's say they take a, a defensive player at 15 and then trade back in. Who's going to have the most say? Like you said, Bill has the final say, but yeah. will Josh get to pick his next guy? Because Josh famously drafted a quarterback number 25 while in Denver. Actually, was he yeah, drafted right we before? Know who that was. Yeah. yeah, we know who that was. <laughs> so one name I want to throw at you because I've heard his name a lot lately. And he's actually in the top 10 quarterbacks in the draft. He's listed right below Kyle Trask. And this guy is listed as a quick decision maker with legs, kind of, but has off-platform accuracy. And that's Stanford quarterback Davis Mills. Yep. Yeah, I've seen him linked to the Patriots as well. And again, for me, it, it depends on 
the best guy. And I don't know, I'm guessing it would have to be a style fit. Well, look what the NFL offenses are now. How many real pocket passes are there? So do you stay back or do you try and get with this century? What I'm really going to be interested in is if a quarterback drops and is available at 15, whether it's Ohio State kid, whether it's Justin Fields, whether it's Mac Jones, or whether it's the North Dakota kid, that's what I'm really going to be interested is if one of them is available and the Patriots don't have to move, do they jump on that guy right then or do they go with defense? Yeah, I, I guess I was going to say gun to your head. If they have their best defensive personnel like pick right there, right, and they can get him, or they have someone that fell, and who knows why they fell at, at the quarterback position, based on, on, on everything that you've ever seen from them, what do you think he does? Defense. <laughs> I think so too. He's never, he's never taken a quarterback in the first round. Not in Cleveland, not here. And again, it's interesting to try and figure out why that might be. Well, when you have Tom Brady, there's no real need. Yep. Right? But, and the closest he came was Jimmy Garoppolo in the second round 62. 62 is the highest he's taken any quarterback ever. Let me throw this scenario at you. And it involves Jimmy Garoppolo. And this is why I bring it up here. You mentioned that he, you couldn't see him coming back, but that's been the rumblings everywhere that we could see Jimmy, that they're, they're positioning to do that. Everybody's expecting if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen before the draft. Why not after the draft? If the 49ers go out and get their guy at number three, after trading into that spot, which that was an amazing day of trading for the 40 for really the, the Miami Dolphins, but the 49ers made out well there too. They go and take their guy at number three. Who's to say they don't turn around and say, Hey, we just got our guy at three, you know, he, give us a, a second rounder this year and a third rounder next year. You can have Jimmy. I, I mean, is that still something that's on the table? Yeah, I think so. I think obviously the 49ers are holding out to get the most that they can. And I think because they surrendered every first round pick they had for the next couple of years, if they can somehow get a first rounder back, then they get their quarterback and lessen kind of lessen the price they had to pay for him. If they get a first rounder back for Jimmy, they're going to hold out. Maybe they even hold out longer. Again, depending on how desperate another team might be, how desperate are the Patriots? Obviously, Belichick doesn't want to play that card. But if you think about it, if Belichick picks the, this future Pro Bowl defensive player at 15, gets what he wants in the draft, and then gives up his number one next year for Jimmy, I don't know. I, he might do that. If, I don't think he wants to do that. but. I think he loves Jimmy. <laughs> oh, he definitely loves Jimmy. Yeah. I think we we all love Jimmy, and uh, honestly, I think he's uh, uh, more attractive than Tom Brady. But that's just me. Can I throw one more scenario? <laughs> Absolutely. Please. What if the Patriots are figuring, or maybe the Forty ers are true to what they say, and they want Jimmy to handle the duties one more year while they groom the next guy 
either he comes in week 10 or he doesn't come in at all. And maybe the Patriots will say, fine, we'll get him next year. So if they, if the Patriots have that in their brain, that might also impact how they go about the draft. Just throwing that out there. That's a dangerous line to walk though. Don't you think? I mean, we would be relying on Jimmy G staying healthy this year and coming back here the year after and being the guy for our offense for, would you say like three to five more years? And then you still have to fit. Then you still have to figure this out, right? When I say impact, that might sway them for moving up the board. Okay. For one, okay. Yep. But that wouldn't preclude them from taking Davis Mills in the second round or later or Kellen Mond or Kyle Trask. Yep. So you still have a future possibility, but you only have Cam for one year. If you get Jimmy the next year, see you, Cam. Hello, Jimmy. We, and we got Jimmy's successor. Right? Karen, you're yep. getting me too wound up here because now I'm thinking of all these yeah, uh, of all of these uh, scenarios where, you know, Cam comes in and they have a rookie quarterback, you know, depending on how the season's going, plays a few games in the second half of the year, but he knows that Jimmy's coming in next year. And <laughs> just pay. So it's just like there's so many things. I'm, I'm looking at the draft board now and I'm like, man, the Patriots could trade away their uh, second round pick uh, and maybe a, a pick next year for you know, San Francisco's 43rd and, and Jimmy. And so it's just amazing as you get into it and you really think about the scenarios and What's going to happen is we're all going to be disappointed. No, Jimmy and Cam's the guy for the next two to three years. Oh, I wouldn't go that far with Cam. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, I hope to one day have Cam on this podcast because I think he, he's great. Yeah. And he's a hell of a dresser, too. But he, you're absolutely right about him. And I, I just think that this team can't go that long. And I think he knows it. I think he knows he's coming to the end, too. Well, but as I said before, if he somehow, if they have a 12, 13 win season with him and do fairly well in the playoffs, again, he's a free agent. Do you think he's going to come back on a pay me nothing deal? No. Someone else going to want him. Yeah. Well, there was those rumors already this offseason that Washington could have been in on him because Ron Rivera is there and they were rumored to want to sign him for $25 million. Obviously, those rumors never really yeah. Uh, came to fruition because he came back here for 14, but it's just, it's an interesting situation with him too. Yeah. While we have you, Karen, I'd love to talk a little bit about some COVID era related things. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the Patriots joining a, a couple other teams and, the, and announcing that they will not be participating or the players announcing they're not going to be participating in the voluntary Most. workouts. Most. Yes. Yeah. Not all, many, but many, I think was the word. What do you think Belichick's reaction was to that? Well, I don't think he would be happy, but there's still time because it's like the first, I mean, they technically start on the 19th, which is Monday, yep. but the first few weeks are classroom anyway. They're not out on the field right away. So having guys not show up in the building isn't that much of a big deal. But it's when, you know, three, four, five weeks down the road, when they're actually have OTA, which is essentially a passing camp. Yep. It's at that point where push might come to shove. And again, because there's so many new players, two new receivers, two new tight ends, Cam's still learning the offense. 
new defense, the rookies who were clearly affected last year, Uche and Anthony Jennings, they need time on the field. So it's going to be very interesting to see how many of the many don't <laughs> show up. <laughs> yeah, I imagine you, Cam and every new per, uh, offensive personnel they signed, they have to, I mean, they don't have to, but like Belichick's probably saying to himself, you have to be here. Well, I just went out and retooled this thing for you. We need time together. Right. Hey, Hunter Henry, how, how much are we paying you? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Matt Judon, how much are we paying you? How much did I, how much money did I throw down? How much did I guarantee? So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I wonder if those guys won't be part of the many because we all know that Bill is a a master contract formulator, and I'm sure that might have been worked into some of those guys' contracts. Which brings up an interesting part of the contracts. Why is Matt Patricia's name on contracts that players are signing? They have to give him something to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's not hurting anyone, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, this is what we'll let you do. Go find us our next our next backup cornerback and put your name on the, the paper. That's funny. Well, I think they're trying to rehabilitate and resuscitate him. I mean, obviously, the Detroit experience was a disaster. So I think, and I also think maybe he's, I mean, Talk about a smart guy. He's a smart guy. He, he is literally a rocket scientist. I mean, right. so maybe they're just working him in another area to, to see if he can use that rocket scientist brain of his and help. I'm going to go ahead and jump the gun here, Joe and Craig, just before you guys do it. I picked the Detroit Lions last year to win the division in a draft in a selection show. I was wrong. I'm often wrong, but I didn't know if that was going to come up. So I wanted to get ahead of it with you, Karen. So don't judge me, right? We all make mistakes. In and that question about Patricia signing contracts is an interesting question that I wish people would ask Belichick, which brings me to my next one. How hard is it to ask the questions that you would normally be able to ask in a press room? Virtually now, like how has the Zoom changed the way in which you get the information that you need to write a story? Well, we got hammered, the media, on some radio outlets for like, well, why didn't you ask Bill why he signed Cam? Why didn't you ask Bill about Tom Brady? Why didn't you ask? Well, they only, we didn't know how much long, the length of the window we had Belichick but it turned out to be like 20, 20 minutes, 20, between 20, 25 minutes. And Bill cleverly and craftily like gave these five minute, 10 minute long winded answers that said nothing. My hand was raised. Only eight people got to ask a question. And there was about 10 people, including myself with my hand raised. You know how these zoom things work. Yep. And basically, Stacey James, the PR guy, said, sorry, we didn't get to all of you. Well, but, and then we get lambasted for not asking the important questions. <laughs> Were so, you directed by Stacey James not to ask those questions? No, no, but he kept on, he limited everyone to not ask, ask any kind of follow-up question. So, and some people did, and that, again, added to the, short window of time and again 
it just it's not conducive to the best interview put it that way not to Belichick I mean again was he going to answer the question so what'd you think about Tom Brady winning what was he going to say? He would just look at you. But we, what <laughs> I think you, that's such a silly question. Anyway. And, but the important question is, what prompted you to bring Cam back? Yep. Right. Right? What did you see in him last year that nobody else saw? <laughs> <laughs> or something. But you could phrase it in such a way that he would probably, he'd probably want to answer the Cam question. Because, again, it reflects back on him. So... I was listening to that radio program this afternoon that you're speaking of from 2 to 6 p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. on a certain radio station. And yeah. and you guys did kind of get lambasted. But the whole time I'm like, what, with the Brady question, it's like, what is he supposed to say? Right. What answer are you looking for? And and with the Cam question, that's why a lot of people asked if Stacey James was directing it because they were there was concern as to, you know, what does he see in Cam? And this is the first time you've talked since week 17 of last season. So it was just. Well, I had three questions prepared. Like I had a bunch of questions prepared thinking, okay, if this one gets asked, then I'll go to number two. If this one gets asked, I'll go to number three. So the three questions I had, one was Cam, two was about the off season that we just talked about. I was going to, I would have asked him, so the players came out with this statement. How did you feel about that? And where do you stand? What is your expectation? That was a second question I had. And I forget what the third one was. But again, my hand was raised. It never came to me. So I never got to ask any of those questions. So how much harder is your job or just the job of the media now virtually, right? Because I, I think as we're talking about it, a, a lot of the story that, that's been written or that, you know, historically has been when someone blurts out a random question, maybe Bill doesn't answer it, right. but it, it's the way he doesn't answer it. That's part of the story. Now that portion, that whole dynamic is eliminated. So ha- have you found it harder to do your job and to get the, the information that you need to, to, to write? Well, just in general, yeah, and not having locker room access. Instead of cultivating relationships or being able to perhaps talk to somebody alone one-on-one, you're on a Zoom call with 50 to 100 people. I mean, somebody asked me, (laughs) a a colleague asked from out of town, say, uh, do you happen to have Cam Newton's contact information, like a phone number or email or something? And I said, well... I don't think I'm going to ask him that in a Zoom call. I mean, that's not something that you would you yeah. know, ask a person with 50 other people on looking. I mean, those are the type of things where you try and foster a relationship. You try and get gain some trust. But all of that comes with, with your access in a locker room. So, again, all of that is tossed out the window. I'm telling you, I think if you had the chance to give him one of your famous apple pies, apple pies. Uh, I think I, I think you'd have that uh, that contact information to, to disperse amongst all of us, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know some of my secrets now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Always come prepared. I think one of the last things that we want to talk about is Julian Edelman, right? You you are on the forefront of the story uh, about him retiring or, or being cut and then retiring. So I have a, a question. Number one just about his impact like what what how big of an impact has did Julian Edelman have in the Patriots organization huge I mean he carried on the I mean 
the whole Patriots offense is predicated on as a possession offense and it, and at its height, it flowed through the tight end position and the slot receiver position. Right. Going back far, as far as Troy Brown, Wes Welker, Brady always needed that quick outlet. And again, because he was so good at reading defenses, the quick outlet to the slot guy was one of his best options. When you have a guy as tough as, and willing to go over the middle to catch those type of passes. I mean, Welker was, Edelman was, but that, the tight ends, but that's all part and parcel of the offense and how it works best. And Edelman, he was good in the regular season, but he was great in the postseason. And again, having that constant, that guy that you know on third down was going to catch the pass, was going to get seven yards on a third and six, was going to get 10 yards on a third and nine, who was always going to make the play and move the chains. That's like irreplaceable, if you ask me. So did his importance off the charts in a Patriot sense? Yeah. And were there favors were there favors done to him by the Patriots in order for him to still collect money this upcoming year, right? Because he still is on the books for right by giving him an injury designation, he can still collect I think two million or whatever a majority of his salary for this season. So he was released with an injury designation. So, or his cont was terminated, whatever, however they phrased it, but the way they phrased it was beneficial to him. It shows you what they think of him. Yeah, exactly. And they, you know, we've seen this happen a lot around the league, but it, it's, it was such a weird day, right? Cause you, you were on the forefront of breaking that story. Then they come out that they've terminated the contract. And then within an hour, he releases this video. How long had this been known that this was going to be the path that the Patriots and Julian Edelman took? Well, I don't, I think that going back to last year and I think it was after the sixth week, we had the procedure done. And then toward the end of the season, there was some talk about him coming back, but he didn't. And then, I don't know, a few months ago, Ian Rappaport had a report that basically said things weren't going great, but he was still, he, you know, still wanted to give it a go. And, you know, all these months later, the knee hasn't, didn't respond quite the way he was hoping from the procedure. But my information was that it was never going to fully come back. The procedures that they do might've given him some relief for a short time period, but ultimately, the same problem was going to keep happening because he he has basically kind of a bone-on-bone situation in his left knee. So, I mean, they inject lubricants and whatever to help, but ultimately, it's there wasn't a fix for it. So with no fix, he was going to be a tough sell, not only here, but anybody else, any, you know, anywhere else. Like Tampa? 
like Tampa. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thought we all had. Was, oh, yeah. Know, he's off to sunny South Florida, and that's where he's going to go to retire with his buddy Tom, and that'll be that. But having here in that situation, I mean, we have we saw him play his entire career here. Some tiny quarterback out of Kent State who gets drafted in the seventh round and, and comes in. and I was going to say, after the video he put out, he would – piss off a lot of people i mean he said he wanted to retire a patriot and end a patriot he was done i've seen another outlet that basically thinks that that down the road when the, right before the playoffs all of a sudden he's going to become a he, tampa's going to sign him and oh, and God. and have him play in that short window that his knee can you know stand up but again i don't see that happening and if I'm Scotty Miller or one of those guys in that offense and all of a sudden they pluck up Julian Edelman in December or January. I, I thought Scotty Miller kind of got the raw end of the deal when they brought A.B. in anyway. And then when Tom Brady threw that uh, first half pass to him in the NFC Championship game, I was like, ah, no, nah, never mind. Yeah, that relationship's good. <laughs> What I'm saying is, I mean, Tampa, I mean, maybe all of a sudden every go, everyone got hurt in Tampa, but you'd have to hurt quite a few guys because they're loaded, beyond loaded. He would be the ultimate bad guy if he did that, right? Because right now, yeah. Yeah. Gronk, Gronk is not looked at favorably Correct. in New England because of the fact that he retired after free agency that, that, that cost us the ability to go get Jared Cook. So when, when I was thinking about this, I was saying, like, these situations are very similar in the fact that Jules waited till after. But maybe the Patriots knew, right? They, they knew what, his, what, what the outcome was going to be. And then they'd already filled the holes for wide receiver. But if you release a Foxborough Forever video and then yeah. go to Tampa for right. November, December, January, there's no coming back from that. Let me just flip the narrative just a little bit. Yeah. What if the Patriots – Again, because basically conveyed to him, we can't carry you another year or we can't have you. And a lot of that went into what I wrote uh, a few weeks back. It was a tough decision for the Patriots to decide what to do with Edelman, because obviously they need to upgrade their receiving core, which they did. And this is another great, beyond great receiver draft. So where does Edelman fit? Or this guy who's basically playing on one leg. So it's also possible that the Patriots conveyed to him their thinking. And between the two sides, it was decided Edelman sat back and said, well, do I want to do this with another team? This is a more generalized question along those lines because you you brought up a good point that I always think about when we see and hear these situations. And there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And you're a little bit closer to that curtain, Mm -hmm. but we have those conversations all the time. And I've had this conversation with so many people of, uh, let's use the example of Grunk, where they end up, he comes out of retirement, they trade his rights down to Tampa and he goes and plays for Tampa and the rest is history. Everyone sees that as, well, the Patriots wanted to get something for him and get him off the books. I see it as he wanted to come out and play, but he retired a year before because he didn't want to play in New England anymore. The question is, how much happens in those conversations that, that the, the public doesn't know about and just sits here and, and blabbers on about and get completely wrong? 
A lot. The, <laughs> the Gronk situation, <laughs> the Gronk situation to how I know it is, so he retired. And again, he was beaten up his body. I mean, all those things were real. But I think it was also in his mind that if Tom ever broke free and ever played and ever went somewhere else, that would be a possibility. And of course, when Tom went, he called Gronk. The thing with Gronk is he had all the leverage against the Patriots. And by that, what the his number against the cap, they didn't have they didn't have any cap space. So if he came back, that would trigger in like a nine or 10 million cap hit. And they didn't have that room. So there's one thing, not that they couldn't make it. Sure. But again, they would have to cut some people for him to come back Two, Gronk. They could have come back a few said he was coming back. They could have traded him except Gronk was only going one place. Now, the Patriots could have said, well, you can come back, but we're going to trade you. And then Gronk said, then I'm going to stay retired. So for them to get something for him, it had to be with Tampa. So he had all the leverage. And and it's not like the Patriots were being nice guys. Right. Right. That was their only avenue to get something in return either that or Gronk was just going to stay stay retired and perhaps because the Patriots had his rights that all spawned because they tried to trade him back in June of 2018 to the Lions right and he said if you trade me I'll retire correct Um, and he also said then the only quarterback I'll play with is Brady one last question that little scenario that you just painted about Jules going to Tampa at the like right before Thanksgiving what are the odds that he comes back here right before Thanksgiving? Would that hold true? That could. Because he would still he could still retire a Patriot. Right. <laughs> I mean, that right. would be a lie. Like yeah. you know. I got the wheels turning when you said that. I'm like, well, we thought Gronk was gonna do that two years ago before he announced his Gronk beach cruise or uh, Super Bowl party, whatever the hell it was. <laughs> but Edelman feels like the guy that would actually come back, do the junior say out type of season uh, towards the end. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was forecast with him going to Tampa, basically rehabbing or do wink, whatever he had to do to get the knee better. Yeah. Because I think it was Mike Florio said he wouldn't be drug tested (laughs) when you're (laughs) retired. Right. Yeah. So he would do whatever it is like to get his knee in the best possible condition to play. And then obviously have that short window of it holding up, basically, if it was just the postseason. 36-year-old Julian Edelman coming back. It's amazing how much goes on behind the scenes that, that fans think and think we know, because uh, we included it. And uh, it's just it fascinates me how close you are to that, curtain. Well, I think he's still, honest to goodness, from my information, is he definitely still wanted to play. Right. But perhaps when the Patriots – maybe indicated that it was best for them organizationally to move on. Then when he weighs his options, well, Tampa's loaded, right? And are they going to take him on with the bad knee and blah, blah, blah. So 
all things considered, when he finally weighed everything, retirement seemed like the best thing to do. Two, two historical questions, and then we can wrap it up, Karen. You ready? Which Patriot team has been your favorite team to cover since you've been in town? And who is your favorite player of all time to cover as well? Wow. Well, I, geez, I think probably the first one, the one that the underdog team that was Cinderella, you know, because again, it wasn't, it was, it was not expected. And once things got expected, that changed the whole, you know, they were a lovable team back then they became to the rest of the world obnoxious, you know, (laughs) everyone wanted them to lose, but it was hard that, that first, that first, I mean, the snow game, I mean, I was standing in the end zone when Vinatieri hit a ball that disappeared, and I had no idea that went through the up. I mean, I could not tell. But just that whole, uh, everything, the soup to nuts season for them, I, I don't know. That, to me, was my favorite. And what was the other question? Who, who's your favorite player of all time that you've, you've covered or that you've worked with the Patriots? Oh, my goodness. Mm. there's been a few yeah and i'd probably be stupid if i listed one (laughs) (laughs) no one's gonna get mad at me if if i don't i don't want so i don't want to hurt any connections so is it okay if i just come up with one more question sure absolutely what was it like in 2004 right or after 2004 when like you just mentioned everyone had already turned on the patriots because we were a dynasty but you're from this area and everyone here was rooting for the red Sox and hated the yankees because they were that dynasty right Mm -hmm. so what was it like having a team you you cover be the team that you hated in baseball it was odd and it's funny i covered the red Sox too when they beat they finally beat the yankees (laughs) so uh, the dynamics are odd it it took a little getting used to because it's like it's hard when you because when you leave the state, I, I mean, or listen to radio every city you went to. I mean, there was like hatred. I mean, being spewed everywhere. And it's like, oh, my gosh. But the Yankees, it's a good perspective because they did. They became the Yankees, essentially. But I also think <laughs> with them losing last year. I almost think there's a lot of the population, the haters out there who are kind of, yeah, they had their fun moment for a minute, but then it's like, all right, well, who are we going to root against? Yeah. You know? So <laughs> yeah. like the enemy was taken away. So I, I think now those people are rooting for the Patriots to come back so that they can hate them again. You know, the Yankees had that transcendent time too after yep. the Red Sox won that first World Series. Mm-hmm. And then it's so interesting because you, we talk about it as fans, right? And you mentioned from an outside perspective, unpopular opinion maybe in this area, but I think the Patriots dynasty was more hateable than the Yankees dynasty. Why? Because of cheating scandals? Well, I think the team, I think the Yankees team themselves, the players on the teams were more likable than the guys here. Than the guys here? I mean, you can make the argument about. And the coaching stuff. Oh, sorry. Yeah, coaches. like Joe, Joe Torrey yeah. versus Bill Belichick in the press conference. It's Joe right. Torrey. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that a lot of the hatred starts at the top. And I'm not talking yeah. about Bob Kraft. I'm talking yeah. about Bill Darth Vader, you know, the man <laughs> in the hood. That's it. That's what I'm talking about. You know, and for sure. And 
once the Patriots started winning, two, they had an air, they did have an arrogance yeah. about them. And it didn't help. Like if you remember the game against the Ravens in the playoffs where Bill Oliver, they're behind and they came back to win that game. And like Bill started having linemen catching passes and, and <laughs> running backs ineligible. And, and like he was playing with the rule book and the Ravens didn't know who to cover because they said the running back was ineligible. So they won that game. And then at the press conference after Tom Brady made some kind of crack of, well, if they know the rule book, maybe they should study the rule book. So when you portray that kind of arrogance and, and stick it in the face of your opponent, that's also frowned upon. Yeah. And the, I mean, they came back being down 14 twice in that game. And all people remember are, are the are that 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 pass to the tight end, right? That he was not undeclared, and then that pressure when Brady said, "Well, it's in the rule book, so you can't be mad at us." That's yeah. that arrogance wasn't there in, in the first run, no, right? Not at all. But the hatred was still real in 04. I, I I very much remember they were like, "Yeah, we've seen this before." Like, we don't because they they had that twenty one game winning streak right in the regular season. So by that time. Uh, between 03 and 04, people had really gotten off the, the Patriots bandwagon. But I also think that I think the team, the, the Corey Dillon team, what that was might have been like the best. Yeah, it was a wagon. Defensively and offensively, the best team that the, they had the perfect season sort of team. But that 2014 was a real wagon without yeah. question. Well, uh, Karen, thank you so much for joining us here. We always want to give you a time to let the listeners know where they can find you. So uh, where can they find you on Twitter or any social media uh, platform? Yeah, a, at K Garigian. I'm also at uh, thebostonherald.com. Obviously, my stuff appears on their website, but AK Garigian on Twitter. So. I, I post most of my stuff. So We're avid readers. That's How do you think I figured out about the apple pie thing? You and Bob Sosi. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Cameron Gregan, thank you so much for taking the time for uh, for Jill Malkin, Craig D'Alessandro, I am Michael Marcangelo saying thank you so much for listening to Missing the Point, and we'll talk to you later. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30 minute podcast where I talk one on one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a beautiful different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.